0: right, so in the youth RC that we have, the youth redemption community that we have with 7th through 12th graders, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a night where we kind of were just trying to get to know each other better. It was the first uh, youth RC of this school year. And so uh, we got, at one point, we got into smaller groups And we kind of had this discussion time together. And the discussion time was centered around getting to know each other more and where we're at with God and who we are and those kinds of things. And so one of the first questions we had at the youth RC for this discussion time was this question. It was, if there is one thing that you could tell people about you so that they knew you better what is that one thing and i know a little bit narcissistic but that's okay and 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 so we asked this question and when we get when we broke up into our smaller groups to discuss this question and other questions uh, i i looked at this first question that i had us do and and i wrote it and i was like man this is kind of a cheesy annoying weird awkward question and so we're all sitting there and we're all quiet and and none of us knows quite how to to answer the question and so i Uh, begin to think, how do I want to answer this question? What do I want to say about myself that I wish people knew in order to know me better? And and what I realized is there, there was nothing that I could come up with. There was nothing I could think of really in that moment to say, hey, this is something about me. But what I did come up with was there, there's a story in my life that really kind of influences who I am, and it's a story of something that, that I, of something that I've been through, and it kind of affects my life, and it's not something most people know about me until they get to know me more, because I usually share this story pretty quickly into a friendship, because it's a significant moment in my life. And so I shared that story to, to our smaller group, and then this is what began to happen. In our group... Instead of people just saying, hey, I'm this, or hey, I, I, this is my personality, or this about me, what our group began to do is they began to share different stories of their life. And here's what's funny about the stories. None of the, the teen stories were like, here's a story, and this is who I am in the story. They just told stories about things that had happened to them and things that they did. But what I began to notice in this was... I actually got to know these teens better through this process of hearing different things that they had done, how they reacted in the story, their perspectives of the world throughout the stories that they were telling. And and so this became, for us in our smaller group, like a good way to get to know each other. And I I think that's kind of what God is doing here in Exodus. He, rather than just define himself and tell us who he is, although he does do that in Exodus, he wants us to get to know him by seeing what he does, seeing how he exists in the world, what he does in our world. And so today, as we get to know God, it's gonna be through what he does. In Exodus, five times already, we've seen God say, I want the Egyptians, I want the Israelites, I want the earth to know me. As we see what God's motivation for all that he's doing in Exodus, he comes back to time and time again saying, I want them to know me. And then two other times in Exodus so far, God says, not only do I want to, them to know them, know me, I want them to know specific things about me. Vince really hit on that last week, and I think he did a good job. And you, we see that God's saying that throughout the plague account that we read last week. And so so my hope for today is that we would look at what God does in in Exodus 11 and 12 and that we would get to know God more. That we wouldn't just see this beautiful story of God rescuing and redeeming his people, but that we would get to know him and who he is and what God is like through the story. I want to read a quote. It's from uh, Christopher Wright, who's written a a, a bunch of books. And one book he wrote in particular that this quote is from is called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. If you are really into theology, if you consider yourself a theology buff and you want to get smarter uh, about the Bible and what it says, and particularly about the Old Testament's connection to our faith, read this book. It's like 500 pages long. You could read just a few chapters at a time. If there's even just chapters that interest you, you could read those by themselves. Uh, but, but read this book, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative by Chris Wright. And I want to read this quote, and it's a long quote, but I think it does a good job of reiterating what I just said, saying that God wants to introduce himself to us through his actions And then it's also a good preview and far more eloquent than anything I'm going to say today. And so I might as well read that so we start off on a good note in this message. And so here's the quote. You guys are smart. I think you can uh, follow along even though it's long. Indeed, according to the text, Exodus, God himself insists that he is to be known in this way. What he is about to do in the great redemption of Israel from oppression will forever be linked to the revelation of his personal divine name, Yahweh, and will also forever define the flavor of that name. Yahweh is the Exodus God. Yahweh is the God who sees, hears, and knows about the suffering of the, pre- of the oppressed. Yahweh is the God who hates what he sees and acts decisively to bring down the oppressor and release the oppressed so that both come to know him, either in the heat of his judgment or in glad worship and service." Yahweh is the faithful God who calls to mind the things he has promised, the purposes he has declared, the mission to which he is committed. Yahweh is the God who will not stand by to watch these great goals snuffed out by the stubborn recalcitrance of genocidal tyrants. This quote is a preview of the sort of God we're going to get to know today. This quote helps us understand who the God of Exodus is. And so let's hop into Exodus chapter 11 and get to know God today. If you're not familiar with the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, Exodus is really easy to find. It's right near the front. It's the second book in in the Bible. We're in Exodus chapter 11. To give a very quick recap of of where we've been in Exodus already, there are people called the Israelites who find themselves in Egypt. And they were once free in Egypt, but then they are forced to become slaves In Egypt, and their oppression becomes greater. Uh, The Pharaoh of Egypt uh, demands that all the baby boys are are killed of, of Hebrews because he does not want their population getting too big. And so, God brings about someone to be a conduit of his redemption, Moses, to redeem and rescue Israel by God's hand. And last week, we we saw God beginning to do that by sending these plagues to Egypt. And I I truly hope, that, and I truly think, actually, that God, in sending these plagues, he was trying to get Pharaoh to, to turn from his sin. And I know there's this mystery of God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the midst of the story. But I think what we can see is happening is God did want Pharaoh to turn but the deeper Pharaoh went into his own sin, eventually God just said, fine, go fully, deeply into your sin. That thing he puts in every human, it says that God basically puts us, in us the ability to know right and wrong. I believe God just removed that. thus hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so we get to chapter 11, and we see the, these nine plagues that have just happened, and Moses is having a conversation with Pharaoh about the last plague that's going to happen. Let's start in verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as as there has never been nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he, this is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, listen, I know we've seen a lot of plagues at this point, but this last one is devastating the last one in the middle of the night, the firstborn of every house of Egypt is going to die and you're gonna let me go. And we see that Moses leaves in hot anger. I think there was an expectation of Moses to, for Pharaoh to go, okay, that's it's been enough. We've seen the darkness, we've seen the locusts, we've seen the boils, we've seen all these horrible things so far. That's enough, we don't have to go this far, I'll just let you go. But Pharaoh doesn't. And so Moses leaves in anger in sadness about the consequence of what's gonna, about to befall Egypt. And God says, listen, the world's going to get to know me through this. And again, we get to that mystery where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I would encourage you to last, listen to the last couple of sermons because I think Vince did a good job touching on that idea because we don't have time for that today. Let's keep going. Let's see. So that's what's going to happen in all of Egypt. Let's see what happens with the Israelites, the people of God, while this is going on. Uh, Chapter 12, we're going to hit 1 through 13. It's a lot, but this is a very significant moment in the story of the Bible. All right? So I think it's important that we read a lot of it. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. What we see God doing here is starting the first Passover. You've probably heard that word and we get to see its origins today in the text is that well, God was going to bring this 10th plague, a death of the firstborn of each household in Egypt. While well, God is bringing that plague, he, he has a, a different desire for Israel. He wants to make a dis- distinction, as he says, between Israel and Egypt. And so he says, get a lamb and, and, and prepare it in all of these particular ways. And you're going to eat it together. And, and, and you're going to take the lamb's blood and you're going to spread the blood as a sign on the on the door posts. And while you eat that lamb, you're going to dress like you're getting ready to get out of there. You're going to eat it in haste. You're going to dress with a staff, you're going to be dressed with a staff in your hand, ready to go, because during the Exodus, you're going to be leaving in haste. And for you guys, this is going to be the beginning of your year. You're going to celebrate this every year as a remembrance of what God has done. That's what we see here in in chapter 12, the institution of Passover. Okay, let's keep going, and then we'll stop for a few minutes to look at some ways we can get to know God through the story. Let's hop down to verse 29. Here is God working in real time in the story, we'll see. God does exactly what he says he would do. At midnight in Egypt, all the firstborn of every household die. While God passes over the houses of Israel because they spread the blood of the lamb on the door. So I think there's two things we, we get to know about God here. And I think they're intertwined and related, and so I want to I say them both together. The first thing is this, is God's wrath, God's punishment of sin makes us uncomfortable. It is hard for us to pallet God's wrath. That's the first thing about God that I want us to know, that his wrath is not easy. The second thing about God and how we get to know him is this, is is surely God views sin differently than us. Surely God sees human morality and, and the mistakes we make in our human morality as far more serious than we do. God's wrath is so serious in this moment, and we can see that God is very serious about our sin. He's way more serious about our sin than we want him to be. If God was an invention of our own making, he would be a lot softer on sin, I think. Right, the way we want God to deal with sin is, is if it's our own personal sin, we kind of just want God to be grandfatherly and kind of like, hey, could you please not do that here? Here's a lollipop. Like, this, this is how we want God to deal with our sin. And then even as we read the Exodus story, the way we want God to deal with sin in the Exodus story is maybe to just snap his fingers and poof, the Israelites are gone. Poof, the Egyptians now all of a sudden are in Antarctica. Like That's how we want God to deal with sin in this story. The only problem is, is he sees it way more serious than you and I do. Human sin is serious to God. And it's more serious than what our sensibilities tell us it is. And so because of that, when we see his wrath in the story, it makes us uncomfortable. I, I, when I read this story, I'm, I'm not some kind of super pastor. I read it and I go, really, God? Is that what had to be done? Like, I wish there was like some kind of theological maneuvering I could take and say, firstborn, the, the word actually also means just cows. Like, like, I wish that's what I could, but it doesn't. There's no way out. This is what happened. This is what God did. And, and it's okay sometimes to sit in our discomfort because maybe our discomfort is showing us something about God and also showing us something about ourselves. But I, I, I also don't want us to just go to things in the Bible and just go, well, there, there's no good reason for what God did. There's no good reason for who, how he let this play out. And I, I think that if we thought a little bit more deeply about this story and about what was going on, we, we could begin to see how just God is in the midst of this story. A, a few things that I hope eases our discomfort in some ways, but I don't think that discomfort ever is going to go all the way away. But there, I think there are some things that we kind of gloss over in this story and we forget about that I think will help us to see how good God is. The first thing is this. God has been incredibly merciful and patient with Egypt so far. Israel's been in slavery at least 100 years, probably more than a few hundred years at this point. Around 100 years before this, 80 years before this, this uh, decree is made that they need to kill all the babies of, of the Israelites. That that all people could participate? That was Pharaoh gave a decree saying all people are now to participate in the killing of the baby boys by throwing them in the Nile. This has gone on for a hundred years, hundreds of years. This oppression of a people has gone on for a long time and only now is God stepping in in such a major way. There's a mercy in that. There's a patience in that. I think another thing that helps us in this story is God, I think, clearly sees systemic sin as a problem. And when I say systemic sin, I mean sin that is happening throughout a society, throughout the Egyptian culture. This sin is going on and people are okay with it. The whole society is essentially okay with it, and God doesn't like that. In the Old Testament, God, like, he does deal with sin uh, one-on-one at times, but very often when God is dealing with the sin of a nation, he deals with the whole nation. And I think it's because God does not like systemic sin. Perhaps, perhaps, God does not like that a whole people were enslaved under Egypt. And maybe not everybody owned a slave, but perhaps he even doesn't like that some people just stood idly by and said nothing and did nothing and didn't care. Perhaps God is bothered when Pharaoh issues a decree to kill all of the baby boys of Israel and some just stood by and said, listen, I'm not going to do it, but I'm not going to do anything about it either. Perhaps God is bothered by systemic sin in a culture. And he sees everyone accountable for those sorts of things. And I should stop saying the word perhaps because I'm pretty sure that's how God sees it. And so what he does On the Passover night is just. I think also what he does on the Passover night is uh, merciful, more merciful than we realize. And I know I already touched on this, but the equivalent punishment for the Egyptians would be that God kills all of their baby boys and maybe lets a few slip through the, the cracks, and God let's Egypt be put into slavery by an oppressive nation. That would be tit for tat. That would be equal retribution to what they had done. And let them live that out for hundreds of years. But God doesn't do that. God only takes the life of the firstborns. So even in that uncomfortableness, God is, is being merciful and I, I, still, I still wrestle with it. I still wrestle with this idea of, why the firstborns, God? Why every firstborn? Surely there's kids. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's okay to be uncomfortable with that. But... Let us not forget who God is and who he has revealed himself throughout history to be through his word. I don't know what the fate of of those firstborns were. But here's what I know. God is good. God is just. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is a restorer. All of these things are true about God. God. And so I don't know why he had to do things the way that he had to do them in this particular story, but I do know that the ultimate fate of those boys, when we see what God did, we will think God is good, and God is just, and God is compassionate. Like, we'll be convinced of it. I don't know if we'll ever see that, but if we do see that, when, when Christ returns in some way, we'll... we'll will know that what God did was good and just and compassionate. And there's, there's another thing that gives me comfort in the story but we're gonna hit on that near the end of this message. Let's keep go, going in the story. So, so far in the story, we've known that God's wrath is not easy to pallet. It's not easy. And he, he surely views sin as far more serious than we view sin, okay? Verse 31, let's see what happens right after everybody wakes up in the middle of the the night. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh has finally hit his last straw, he brings in Moses, and he says, leave, just get out of here, take your people, go, do what you want to do, and on your way out, bless me also. Pharaoh is so confused, and he wants the the gifts of God without God himself, and in the narrative of scripture, that's a scary place to be, and I could preach a sermon on that, but we don't have time for that. But I think we begin to see as, as God's people are freed, as God's people can just walk out of Egypt no problem, we see something else about God. God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer. He heard his people's cries, he took them out of slavery by no works of their own hands in war. He remembers the covenant he had with Abraham and all his descendants, and God keeps it. He has been their redeemer in this story. In uh, that world, in in Israel, but in that world, there was a word for redeemer, and it was a goel. And this is what a definition of a goel was in that time. A goel was a near kinsman who acted as protector, defender, avenger, or rescuer especially in situations of threat, loss, poverty, or injustice. God has been all those things to Israel. So we know that God is a redeemer. God is someone when called upon, protects, defends, brings vengeance and rescue to those who need it. God is a redeemer This is why our church's name is Redemption. We believe that God took us out of very broken situations and He gave us a new life of freedom that can only be found in Him. We believe we are in very bad situations and He rescued us, He protected us, He brings vengeance to those situations in ways we can't even imagine or know about until He returns. God is a redeemer. We need to get to know God as that. He is a redeemer to all who cry out to him. And some of you might be wrestling with that right now and go, I don't, I, why has he not heard my cries? He's heard your cries. And I don't know why you maybe have not experienced redemption the the, the way that, that you may want to. But I do know this. God works in his own time in redemption. We see this in the Exodus story. This is, Moses is 80 years old before some of this stuff starts taking place. God works in his own timing and in his, in his own way to redeem all things. God is a redeemer. Let's keep going and see what else we can get to know about God. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead So as Israel is leaving, they're remembering what Moses commanded them to do because God said that they should do this, is on their way out, they need to ask the Egyptians, hey, can I have your gold and your jewelry and some clothes? And the Egyptians would just give it over to them. In the, in the ancient world, this is what happened. When one nation would rise up against another nation, the army would go in, they would win the battle, and then the soldiers would go into all the households and just take whatever value that they wanted. They would take whatever they want. This is why people went to war, because they knew that if they survived the battle, they could come back rich. And so, in this story, though, the Israelites plunder Egypt without any act of war on their, on their behalf. They're just leaving out the door, and the Egyptians are just handing over stuff to them. This is what we can know about God from this little detail that sometimes we gloss over, is God is saying, He's king. God is saying He's king by doing it this way. He's saying to Egypt, "Pharaoh's not your king. I'm your king." He's saying to Israel, "You guys don't even have a king. I'm your king." He's saying to the Earth, "You think your kings are more powerful than me? They're not." God is declaring his kingship. God wants us to know that he is king over all the earth. God alone is king. Let's keep going. Verse 37 and 38. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock both flocks and herds so Israel's leaving as they're leaving we get another small detail that we sometimes gloss over we get a probably a round estimate population number there's around 600,000 men leaving besides women and children this is a huge number so this is in in the millions And most people that try to attack this text, they try to go like, look, this is why it's fake. There's no way Israel could have been that big. And I agree, there's no way Israel can be that big. That's why the next verse says, a mixed multitude went up with them. Here's what most theologians believe is going on. and, and, And it's clear in the text there. It wasn't just Israelites leaving. More than likely, at the very least, there was probably Egyptians too. Egyptians who had just sat through all these plagues. Remember the Egyptians who listened and feared the Lord and hid their animals from the hail? I imagine it was some of these Egyptians. But Egyptians who said, you know what? That God just declared he's king. He clearly is more powerful than any being on this earth. I'm going to go with his people. Other theologians think too, it, it probably was not just the Egyptians. It was probably any foreign slaves that were in Egypt that saw this mass exodus of the Israelite slaves and said, you know what, I'm going to go with them. And when the slave master said, hey, you're not Israelite, they would say, do something, try it. And they said, you know I'm um, okay, I won't. <laughs> right? And so we have this large, mixed multitude of people leaving, and it shows us something. It shows us, I think, at least three things about God. One, God is compassionate. Right? Look how inclusive and loving our God is. As people are marching out, even though he's made a distinction between Egypt and Israel, he lets anyone hop in line. You probably have memories of when you were a kid and, and there was a kid that was more inclusive than the other kids and you felt special and loved by that person. Like it was because that kid was showing compassion and God is doing that here as well. Again, it shows us God's mercy. Again, we've seen how serious sin is to God, and so Egyptians just hopping in line with the Israelites seems uh, like they're not getting the punishment that the rest of Egypt is, would deserve. But God is merciful, and he says, no, you can, you can come on in. You're recognizing me as king. Come on in. Join the line. And then we also see that God is a God of the nations, God is a God of the nations because people from other nations are hopping in and they're effectively becoming the people of God when they do. There's a few other stipulations to do, but I, I, I'm, I almost guarantee they all did them because they witnessed God, they feared God for who he was, and they began to follow him. And so no matter what nation they were from, they became Israelites that day because God is a God of the nations. And anyone in Israel... Is the people of God. God is compassionate, merciful, and a God of the nations. Let's look at how chapter 12 closes. Verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the last passage there is the institution of, of, of Passover. Again, reiterating how important this, this Passover meal was. This verse, verses 40 through 42, it, it, it's really interesting to me because it, it makes a note of how God watched over his people as they left Egypt. That's, that's interesting to me. But then another really interesting thing to me, and, and this verse, I feel like I've glossed over it, like I've never seen it before, even though I know I've read it before, but Passover was not just supposed to be a remembrance of what the Lord has done, but did you see what else Passover is? It is a watching kept to the Lord. As they remember Passover, that they were to be on vigil like the Lord was on vigil. That they were to look to the Lord and keep watch. And I began to go, What's going on here? And And as I study it more, what I realized was when God is telling them that they are to be on vigil, what he's saying is, I'm not done being the Exodus God yet. I'm not done taking care of sin in the world yet. I'm not done showing my compassion yet. I'm not done declaring that I am king over all the earth yet. I am not done redeeming and rescuing people yet. And so the people of God were supposed to be on vigil for that throughout history, watching where the exodus God was moving and working This is what I find so compelling about God. He, he takes a people and he says, you're gonna do this thing and you're gonna do it every year and it's gonna be the, the, the mark of your year, essentially. It's gonna be one of the most important kind of event of your year and it's so that you can hold on to who I am and so that the world may know who I am for generations, for centuries, because God works throughout time. And, and, and this is where we get to the last way to get to know God more, and it's through the Passover. The Passover points to who God is and what he's done. And specifically, this is how we get to know God more, through the Passover. Because God is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And so much of the Passover, Jesus relived despite the fact that Jesus in his character, he's all those things we just talked about. He's a rescuer. He's a restorer. He's a redeemer. He, he declares to be king. He, he has all of these things that the Exodus God declares to be in his actions. Jesus declares them with his mouth and in his actions. Not only that, though, the Passover itself points to Jesus. The Passover itself pointed to more work that God would do this way and I would argue even more powerfully. Let's look at some of the ways that the the, the Passover points to Jesus. Uh, First, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says it to Jesus as he's walking up to get baptized. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, right? When you say that in a group of Israelites, they go, wait, what? Like this was a big deal. They knew that John was making a reference to the Passover or at least the sacrifices that they had to make all of the time. And so when John is saying, Jesus is the lamb, they hear, Jesus is the Passover lamb? Another thing, the Last Supper was Passover. We reference it every week when we take communion, that Jesus was taking Passover with his disciples as he instituted communion. Passover is kind of this week-long celebration that that goes along with the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. And so Jesus says, celebrates Passover with his disciples, and then he goes and dies during Passover after already being called the Lamb of God. So much of the Passover points to Jesus. God wanted this imagery to stick so bad that even little minor details of the Passover point to Jesus. They weren't supposed to uh, break any bones of the lamb during Passover. Jesus, when he died, none of his bones were broken. and, and kind of a, a cra- It was kind of crazy that that even happened that way because as people were crucified, the way they actually died was usually by asphyxiation. They would suffocate because of the position they were on that cross. Jesus, though, had been nailed to it. And so he more than likely bled out. And so at the end of the day, when the Roman soldiers just wanted to walk away from the mess, they would just break the legs of anyone that was still alive so they would suffocate faster. But with Jesus being already dead, they decided to just shove a spear into his side to make sure he was dead. Even little minor things of the Passover point to Jesus and his work as he relives the Passover in a way that I think is gonna, what we're going to see is more powerful In the Passover, God shows us how serious sin is to Him. right? They have to get blood from a lamb and and put it on doorposts, right? Like this is graphic, this is strange, but it shows us how serious he is about sin. But what we don't know is sin is even more serious to God. Because what we see as Jesus relives the Passover story is that it actually doesn't take the blood of the lamb to get God to Passover. It takes the blood of his son The Passover story points to Jesus. During the Passover story, if you didn't trust in the blood of the lamb, a firstborn died. Jesus even reenacts this part of the Passover night. This wasn't part of Passover, but during Passover, every firstborn child died. Jesus takes on the wrath we see in Egypt in that moment Jesus is the son. Jesus is the firstborn who is dead and killed due to other people's sin. The Passover points to Jesus. The first Passover, we see that the people of Israel are freed from their oppressor. In this Passover, what we begin to see is that Jesus' death, he is making a way for us to be free from our oppressor. And our main oppressor is sin. We see throughout the New Testament that sin is an oppressor to us. We see that in the Old Testament as well. But not only that, that enslaves us. Have you ever noticed that about sin? The more you do a sin, the more chains it feels like it has on you. Or even if you just introduce yourself to a new sin, this sin begins to warp you and wrap you up and control you. And if you haven't noticed it about yourself, I think you're kidding yourself. This is the nature of sin. It is our oppressor, and it enslaves us, and Jesus' death on the cross can free us from that. Jesus is the Exodus God, and on the cross, He shows us so much of that. The reason we can be comforted by the wrath that we see in Egypt that night is because Jesus allows himself to take on that same wrath. And not only to just take it on, but to step in our place, to be like that lamb, so that his blood would be a sign to us about how much God cares about taking care of sin and rescuing us. And here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to spread blood on a doorpost to find rescue. We just have to trust and cry out to Jesus. Jesus. We just have to trust that his bl- blood that was spread on those two posts of the cross w- did what he said it would do, which is offer us freedom. And we can trust that because he resurrected from the dead. There is over 500 witnesses that saw this resurrection. And if you even look at the New Testament accounts and the people that said he was resurrected, you, you, you would be hard-pressed to think that they didn't think that they actually saw Jesus back from the dead, historically speaking even. And that resurrection pointed to God coming one day and fully rescuing us, fully making all things new, fully restoring us, fully taking care of sin. But the cross did too in this mysterious way. Only through Jesus' blood can the wrath of God pass over any of us. Only through Jesus' blood can we be freed from the oppressor that sin is in our lives. Only through Jesus' blood. The Exodus story gives us a choice. And we we alluded to it in that quote read at the beginning. We can meet God in one of two ways. We can meet him like the Israelites in his compassion, his mercy, his redemption and his rescue. Or we can meet God like Pharaoh met God and got to know God through the heat of his judgment. My hope is that we would see how powerfully God has worked through history and realize that we should all meet God like the Israelites met God to cry out and ask God to save us and redeem us and trust in the blood of the Lamb. rather than be like Pharaoh and say, I don't need that lamb's blood. I don't need to change. I I can keep running my life the way I run it. That's not the story that God tells in this world. So I hope we got to know God more today, and I hope we we began to see how much more deeply we need his redemption, salvation, and, and a better king. Jesus is the Exodus God. Let's pray, church. God, this is an incredible story, incredible true story. Thank you so much for what you did. Thank you that you're the sort of God that doesn't just tell us who you are, although that's, that's great and I love those moments when you do, God, but that you also show us who you are. You also have us come to know you through what you do. And so my prayer is simple, God. Help us to know you more. Help us to know you. Help us to see you in your son. Holy Spirit, do a work in our heart that causes our hearts to follow and love you. God, hear our cries out and rescue us and redeem us. God, thank you. Amen.